Thank you, Gina, uh, for those poignant words and uh, for the thanks that you bring from the community. Uh, First Church is a funny name for a church, right? First Church. Many years ago, Rabbi Waldman, who at the time was at the conservative synagogue on Fairfield Woods Avenue, Congregation Bethel, said to me, said, that's a funny name, First Church. And I said, well, we were first, so it's First Church. And he said, oh, right, well, Bethel was the first synagogue in Fairfield, so we'll call it First Synagogue. And I said, okay, okay I take your point. Um, but while we may have been chronologically first, uh, that's, you know, that and $1.50 will get you a cup of coffee. Um, but what we really want to be first on is um, our commitment uh, to the community and to the causes of justice and uh, peace and equity. And uh, the fact that you have found that in us is wonderfully affirming. And we are grateful, humbled, uh, to be a partner with you and with others in our community um, in this work. So thank you very, very much. So for eight weeks, we've been on a journey with Jesus from Galilee as he heads down uh, to Jerusalem. It's 12 weeks in length, the, 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 uh, the lectionary's journey with Mark, Jesus through Mark, as he goes to Jerusalem, as I noted last week. He's not wandering aimlessly across the landscape and finds himself surprised to be in Jerusalem. He's set out to get from Galilee to Jerusalem, specifically with the express purpose of provoking the crisis with the rulers, that is to say Rome, which would result in his death. Full foreknowledge and intention. And so his whole journey is suffused with this foreboding sense of the coming crisis, but the disciples who are traveling with him have a very difficult time coming to terms with Jesus' saying, because what he's saying runs contrary or contradictory to their expectations of what they would reasonably expect a Messiah to be, or what scriptures had taught them about the nature of the Messiah, and he's predicting his death three times. From chapters 8 through chapter 10, Jesus teaches that he will go to Jerusalem, be traded into the hands of evil men, the Romans, be crucified, dead, buried, and then be raised from the dead. And every time he says this, you can hear the gears in the disciples' heads going, <coughs> like when you try to shift a car without stepping on the clutch, the thing doesn't work. And they ask silly questions in response to what he's saying. Now, we think we're smarter than the disciples because we think we get it because we're looking at the whole thing ex post facto. But really, when you pause to reflect on what Jesus is saying, we don't really get it either because it's a tremendous challenge that he's laying out, not just in the first century, but in the 21st century to ask us to really think about the world, ourselves, our place in the world, God's intentions for us in a remarkably different revolutionary way. So twice up until this point in chapters 8 through 10, he's told them about his impending death. And each time they don't get it and they ask stupid questions. Mark is a very skilled writer because he bookends this 
section 8 through 10 with healings in which he restores sight to those who are blind. First, in chapter 8, the healing of the blind man at Bethsaida. And then, just after the passage that we'll read for today, the healing of Bartimaeus in Jericho before they take the turn out of the Jordan Valley and head up, literally, to Jerusalem. And he does this because in the restoration of sight to the blind man at Bethsaida and to Bartimaeus, he's telling us that Jesus wants us to open our eyes to see the world in a different way. So in the 10th chapter, just after the passage we looked at last week, where he said to the rich person that if he wanted to follow Jesus, he ought to go and sell everything that he had, give the proceeds to the poor, and then come and follow him. And the rich man went away sad, troubled, grieving, because he was very rich. The only person Jesus invites to come with him, calls to come with him, that refuses to follow in all of the Gospels. So at 32, we pick up, they were on the way to Jerusalem, going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. They were still amazed, and those who followed Jesus were afraid because he had challenged this rich young ruler, and they didn't know what to make of it. He took the 12 aside. He has a whole host of people who were following him, but there are 12 disciples, the closest ones. He took the 12 aside and began to tell them what was to happen to him for the third time, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man, referring to himself in the third person again, the Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes who will condemn him, to death, and then they will hand him over to the Gentiles, the Romans, and the Romans will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him, and after three days he will rise again. Pow! How would you respond to this third prediction? Well, here's how James and John, the sons of Zebedee, respond. They came forward and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us anything we ask. Wow. <laughs> I'm sorry, but where did that come from? We want you to do for us anything we ask of you. And Jesus said, Well, what is it you want? And they said, Well, grant us to sit with you one on your right hand, and one on your left, in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, be baptized with the baptism that I will be baptized? They replied, Oh yes, we are able. And then he said to them, The cup that I drink, you will indeed drink, and the baptism with which I am baptized, you will indeed be baptized. But to sit at my right hand, or at my left, is not mine to grant. 
but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. When the other disciples, the ten, had heard this, they became angry with James and John, vying for the best seats in heaven. Right? And Jesus said to them, You know, among the Gentiles, the Romans, they recognize their rulers and they lord it over them, a system of domination. We have to remember that Jesus and his contemporaries, everybody who knew, the entire population of Palestine, the name for the Roman province of Galilee and Judea, had lived under a military occupation for three generations by this point. And living under Roman occupation was no picnic. We complain about taxation, but at least when we pay taxes, it's for our benefit, theoretically. But when you pay taxes in the Roman Empire, you paid so that the Romans could pay their legionnaires who would keep watch over you and kill you if you got out of line. That was the purpose of the taxation. You were paying your imprisoners. You know that the Gentiles, whom you recognize as the rulers who lorded over them, and they're great ones who are tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. Whoever wishes to be great among you must become your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you must become servant of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Amen. Now bear in mind, up until this point in the journey, his entire teaching ministry had been about how he was going to respond to the aggressive, violent, evil oppression that confronted him and all of his contemporaries, his disciples, all of the people of Palestine and of the Roman Empire. He was going to lay out for them an alternative method of responding to this violence and this oppression that wasn't passive, nor was it aggressive, but a third way, which is to say active, nonviolent resistance to evil and domination. From a tactical standpoint, Jesus is smart enough to know that a bunch of Galilean peasants were never going to drive the Roman legion into the sea. It wasn't going to happen. They were the greatest army on the face of the planet, the largest military force on the face of the planet, like us today. From a deeper level, however, it wasn't a tactical or strategic decision. It was the recognition 
that to confront this violence with more violence, to confront this aggression and oppression and domination with more aggression and oppression and domination, only served to continue and expand and exacerbate the suffering of humanity. You might win the battle, but you would lose the war of establishing justice and of peace. The only reasonable response to this kind of oppressive system of domination was through active nonviolent resistance. So the thing that Jesus is bringing to the disciples is a different way of seeing the world, recognizing oppression for what it is in the 21st century as much as it was in the first century, even more so in the 21st century. The systems of oppression in our lives, economic, cultural, racial, military, the way we devote our resources. 29% of children in America live in poverty. And we can't even pass a bill to support families with children, but we can devote billions to rockets and bombs. Well, children eat lead paint, go to substandard schools, and live in rat-infested apartments, coming out with no opportunities for the fulfillment of their lives as human beings, decent lives. So he's challenging us to see the world in a very different way and to resist that system of domination. So when he says, a ransom for many, in the medieval world, Christian churches had become obsessed with an interior experience of sin, original sin, that imputed to every human soul, that you were a sinner. And, in the words of Jonathan Edwards, in the hands of an angry God. And so they developed this theory, an incorrect theory, I believe, that Jesus was either a ransom in the sense that he was paying, you were paying off the devil who had his demonic possessions on you, you were paying him off to let humanity go, or you were paying an a debt that couldn't be paid any other way to God to free you from sin. But that's not what Jesus has been talking about. He's not talking about Find me the place where Jesus talks about original sin. Really, look it up. I'll give you five thousand, I'll give you five million dollars. I'll give you a billion dollars. <laughs> where Jesus talks about original sin. He doesn't talk about original sin. The first job of any authentic religion is to infer, affirm the inherent dignity of every human person. If you remember anything that I ever say, remember that. An authentic religion affirms the inherent dignity of every human person. Therefore, any system which is designed to, or by happenstance, denies that dignity is against God. 
And that's what Jesus is calling us to. The ransom that he's giving us is to show us by the extremity of his own example how we can change the world by resisting the systems of domination, which afflict us and the entire planet. Today, if I was putting down the title of the sermon, I wouldn't call it resisting the systems of domination. I would entitle it dismantling the systems of domination, because it's really, it's one thing to resist. But the deeper movement, of course, upon us is to knowing what we're up against, then actively working to redress that which is wrong and to establish that which is in consistent with God's vision for humanity. How could we not be anti-racist, for instance? How could we be completely complicit with an economic system and compliant with an economic system that rewards wealth and leaves everybody else behind, crushed by loads of debt and inadequacies in the systems that should provide all of us with the opportunity to lead a decent life. How could we be complicit? Many years ago, a dear friend of mine, an Orthodox rabbi, Joseph Ehrenkrantz of blessed memory, uh, we were having a very frank conversation, and uh, he said to me, so gee, he said, this thing with Jesus, David, he said, you believe that Jesus was the Messiah, right? I said, yes. Now, he also believed in the Messiah, but the Messiah had not yet come. And he said, okay, so you believe that Jesus was the Messiah, and he came 2,000 years ago, all this stuff. He said, so if Jesus was the Messiah, how come the world looks the way it does? Boom. If the Messiah's job is tikkun olam, to repair the world. And Jesus was the Messiah. How come the systems of domination still prevail? Now the answer is a complicated one because it's a hard question. And we're going to work very hard to somehow <laughs> let ourselves out from underneath it. But finally, we, it requires Christians to be frank with ourselves, candid with ourselves, honest with ourselves, and say that the world looks the way it does 2,000 years after Jesus because we haven't really followed him in the way that we said we would. We have allowed ourselves to be co-opted by, become complicit in, and in fact become perpetrators the systems of domination for the last 2,000 years. So this is a passage that calls us to lamentation, to confession, to engagement, to re-engagement with Jesus' vision of a world that is just and thereby a world that has peace. No justice, no peace. It's, that, that, that's, not, that's not a bumper sticker. That's the Bible. The, the Bible's very clear. No justice, no peace. <laughs> so in my response to Rabbi Aaron Krantz, I said, well, 
You got me there, Rabbi. He was very kind. And then he said to me, well, it's okay, David. When the Messiah does come, because, of course, Jews expect the Messiah to come, and Christians, theoretically, expect the Messiah to come again. The second coming. He said, so when the Messiah comes, I hope we're together. So we can say to him, Messiah, we have a question. Have you been here before? <laughs> but the Jewish view is that the Messiah will come not deus ek machina, like in a Greek play, where the gods descend and resolve the irresolvable conflict at the end of the play. The Messiah will come not deus ek machina, but the Messiah will come when the world is fit, ready for the Messiah to rule. And that will happen when together we have not just resisted, but we have dismantled the systems of domination and established the systems of justice and of peace. Amen.